Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Rick Hess, who's a senior fellow and also the director of our Education Policy Studies Department here at AEI. He works primarily on K-12 and higher education issues. He's also an executive editor of Education Next and the founder of AEI's Conservative Education Reform Network. Before entering the research world, Rick started his career as a high school social studies teacher. And we especially want to plug his new book, which is just about to be released, The Great School Rethink, which will be out on June 13th by Harvard Education Press. So thanks for joining us, Rick. Hey, thanks for having me, Phoebe. It's great to have Rick. You know, when I first came to AI, Phoebe, I walked around the halls of the old office over on 17th Street, and everywhere I looked, there was another book by Rick Hess, <laughs> and then about six other books by the people who were in his program. And I was being told that I had to replicate that in the Poverty Studies program, <laughs> and I said to myself, this is impossible. There is no way this is going to happen. Rick is so productive and so in the discussion You know, no discussion on education happens in America without Rick Hess, and now without one or two or three of the members of his team, his scholar team, and then all of his people that work for him as research assistants and program directors go off and staff the Senate Education Committee or the House Education Committee or the Department of Education. So it's just uh, Rick is one of the you know real stalwarts of AEI. We're honored to have you with us. <laughs> that, is, that is very nice. You, although it's funny, of course, I was here about ten years before Robert came. Robert's now president. I am still <laughs> the exact same job yeah, yeah. I was when Robert yeah, first came. Yeah, well, there's there's a lesson here. Busy I think you're staying right where you want to be, and I'm guess like where I want to be. <laughs> so this latest book, The Great School Rethink, is out just now. And why'd you write it? And what are you trying to say? Sure, I wrote it because. I'm worried that we're I'm worried that we're at risk of learning the lessons of the pandemic wrong. What happened during the pandemic was a lot of parents were watching their kids zoom on the kitchen table and didn't like what they see. A lot of parents thought kids were learning a lot less than they'd imagined they had. A lot of parents were frustrated with what was happening in school, and this decades-long, century-long relationship of convenience just got rattled. And so you've got lots of parents looking for something different. At the same time, you've got lots of teachers who were enormously frustrated. They felt like they weren't being appreciated. They felt like they didn't know how to work with parents. They weren't getting the help they needed with tech. And I think it's all created something that we've been missing for, say, the last quarter century of school reform, when with programs like No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top and Common Core, there was this effort by really passionate reformers to kind of pick up big sticks and beat American education finally into a better, more useful shape. And the problem was both teachers and parents tended to kick at this. And I think what we're seeing now is actually, rather than having to push school improvement onto families and communities and teachers, you're seeing a real hunger for folks to solve problems. And what I worry is that I see, say, Biden Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, or TED or Ted Talkers, or Foundation President foundation kind of presidents talking about how we have to have a great reset of American education. One more grand kind of strategy for fixing schools from Washington or Silicon Valley. And I actually am worried that we are going to wind up missing the opportunity to solve problems in a way where parents are going to be eager to take us up on the deal. 
So I go around the country a lot, Rick, and this issue comes up a lot in the post-pandemic attitude toward education. I hear from people I speak to, and I also see how they react to things I say. And what I what I hear said, and what I sometimes say, is is that many many Americans saw that their their own public school wasn't as good as they thought it was, and they saw it in the curriculum, they saw it in the 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 way they handled COVID, they thought. They saw it in the school closings, which they felt like the education establishment allowed to go on much longer than it should have, revealing that they weren't all that interested in kids' education, but maybe their own, you know, their own interests. And so what's what it's led to is a much greater desire for choice and options mm-hmm. and an ability to opt out of the traditional public school. So that's the way I say it, similar to what you just said. But But is there something different? Did I say something wrong? No, no. <laughs> you said, right. In fact, one way to th- you, w- there, there is one interesting overlay here. When you hang around like Washington, there's one group of people who says, we're for empowering parents to do what's right for their kids. And then you go, say, to the AFT, and they say, word for defending shared community institutions against rapacious privatizers. You know who doesn't actually think either of those things? Is parents. Like when you talk to parents, 75% of parents even now give their kids public school in A or B after all of the frustration and closure and craziness the last couple of years. But 75% of those parents also support education savings accounts and vouchers. What parents are saying is we really believe in our local schools. We like getting to know our neighbors. We like being part of the PDA. We like going to a football game on Friday night. We believe in it. But we also believe that if it ain't working for us, we have the right to find a school or an environment that works for our kid. And I think what's happened, for instance, is school is school choice, for instance, was long hobbled by it made very little effort for the last, say, 20 years to recruit, say, suburban parents into the ranks of school choice. We talked about school choice as a strategy for getting kids out of awful and failing and unsafe urban schools. And it is. That's good. But there's also lots of parents who might like part of what happens at their kid's school but hate their math program or are really worried about the way it's approaching civics or history. And we never talked about choice as a solution for them, and we should and we can. So what you're saying is that this is an opportunity to reform within the schools as well, that, that the teachers apparently also were frustrated and unhappy. And, this, and so let's talk about parents' involvement in the leadership decisions and policy decisions of public schools through involvement in school boards and things like that. You're, you, you think that's a good thing, getting them more involved? I think making sure that schools are responsive to what parents and kids need is about. I don't think giving parents homework assignments, being like you got to go run for school board is good in its own right. But I think making sure that schools are not staying closed because unions find it convenient or because it's the path of least resistance but that they are doing what families and communities need is a good thing. And that means parents should be heard and should be involved and should have should have a big say. Okay, so let's talk about the one hot-button issue that one of your scholars writes about occasionally, and you do too, and that is curriculum and critical race theory. Where are you, or where is the book on that? Is there elements of a curriculum on critical race theory or the history of America for high school students in your typical public school that is worthy of rethinking? 
So, so actually, I mean, Pondicio is going to hate this book because mm-hmm. this is a book for those of us who think about systems rather than ra- rather than actual curricula. But look, I mean, as, uh, as somebody who taught high school social studies in like the last century, my general philosophy on this is one of the reasons you see this backlash around choice and you see this frustration by parents is that the conversation about values that we see looming large in schools is one that proceeds under the tutelage of education school professors and DEI consultants and career bureaucrats, and parents feel like they've been disinvited to this. And what the right way, I think, to address these things is I certainly have preferred curricula. They understand that America has massive imperfections, but is on the whole a remarkable place that has been invaluable in shaping our, our modern world. And I want schools that understand that, and I want educators who think civics is important. But within that, there's going to be a lot of variability. And am I okay with the existence of schools of choice where that, that take a more acerbic take on American history? I am, so long as those are schools that families are choosing to be part of, that educators are choosing, and that there's not a thumb on the scale for that kind of point of view in publicly operated systems. Yeah, I completely agree that the the key sort of corrective for bad curriculum or curriculum that you're uncomfortable with as a parent is choice. You just be able to opt out. But you said before that but most people don't want to opt out. They want to stay in the public school that they live in and they're suburban parents. They're the folks who you're always reminding us to be concerned about, which I agree with. So there there really does need to there you you got you must admit that the those people that you mentioned in the lice gentlemanly way you did the DEI DEI consultants and bureaucrats and education school administrators they do put the thumb on the scale the other way oh yeah absolutely and so parents if you want to if you want to equalize it or balance it out, you got to get in the discussion, right? I mean, I don't see how you sure. don't. Oh, no, absolutely. And that's why groups like Moms for Liberty and Parents Defending Education ha- have been so important. But look, two specific points that I think it lost in this conversation. One is that I was doing this work when Scott Walker was first elected out in Wisconsin, about 2010, 2011. And we were talking about, we were helping this Wisconsin think tank with choice work. And when you poll parents, do you like your kid's school? Like I mentioned a moment ago, parents say yes. But we, what we did something that rarely gets done for reasons that escape me is we asked them how much they like their kids' math program, how much like they like their, and there suddenly the percentage giving in at A goes from seventy or eighty percent down to thirty percent. And I think when you were talking about civics or history, now what's different about education today versus twenty years ago is it is no remarkable thing to say I'm going to opt out of my civics and U.S. history curriculum at this school. And I'm going to utilize course choice to opt into that one being offered by Great Hearts or that one that's being sponsored by Hillsdale. This was simply technically not, not a season, possible. Not possible. Past, but now it is. Now it is. And, and similar to this this modern states thing that allows you to get college credits on major courses. I was just thinking as you're speaking that that if you were in a public school and you, you weren't happy with the AP history course because it was being taught by a you know, somebody that or, or who emphasized the things you weren't comfortable with, which is a, a valid point you can have. Mm-hmm. You could just say, well, I'll take the modern states version of the college credit course for AP history, take the exam, get the credit and did it all, all on my own. And That's so, the kind of option 
you've been encouraging for 15 years. As part of, right, not instead of letting parents opt out of a school that's unsafe or lousy, but in addition to. Yes. And, and I, so that's where I think, you know, so your point, you're pushing me, you know, when you push me, you say, Rick, but don't those suburban parents, and what I'm saying is the solution set for the suburban parents has changed. Yes. And that's one of the things we saw during the pandemic when we re- saw that learning pods explode across the country. We've seen the formation of these micro schools. We have floated one of our alums, Julie Squire at Bellwether Education, has crafted a legislative proposal for charter teachers where individual teachers subcontract with district, kind of like a psychiatrist of a hospital where you're no longer on payroll. But you're right. there's all kinds of models here that allow us to think about how do we solve different kinds of problems for families relating to curricula, relating to and kids' And those models, needs. and you've said this before, but I think it bears repeating, those models include remaining in the public school but getting your education for your child in other ways outside of the public school at the same time. Uh, A little bit of this for them, when you're in the school, you're on the team, you play in the music band, but maybe you get this course from Well, I mean, here's the odd thing. Bernie Sanders, when he talks about single-payer health care, he never says you get to pick hospital A or hospital B. Bernie Sanders says, of course you get to pick your general practitioner and then your... Those of us who talk about markets and education, we're not as imaginative about markets as Bernie Sanders. We're like, you can leave this school and go to, well, how about creating the opportunity for families to choose the options that work for their kid? Okay, so one of the things I was thinking about when we got down here that I would sort of run you through all the hot button issues of education (laughs) and have you tell me what the book or you say about them. And so so if you don't mind, one, one more I want to talk while we're still on curriculum. So I'm, I'm picking up from the education world that there's suddenly been a rethink about reading. <laughs> and I just want to know where you are on that. That we actually know something about how to teach kids to read. It's, there, there's a basis in scientific fact. There was an, a report done early in the Bush administration, the National Literacy Report, that was largely rejected by all of the experts in reading, the Ed School Professoriate and school districts, for the better part of 20 years, it has come roaring back. And I'm a big believer when we actually know very specifically what it takes for a particular individual to teach them the skills that they need to read or, be, or do math, it is, it is professionally irresponsible not to follow that course. It would be like a physician who actually has prescribed treatment protocols saying, yeah, I don't want to do that. I want to do this other stuff. Right, but but you're saying that's what we've been doing. We've been that's ignoring we- the evidence that's been there for a long time, and for some reason now they're willing to accept the evidence when before they wouldn't. And and just tell, give us a greater specificity on it because, and I'm, I think you're going to use the word phonetics, phonetics. here. It's, uh, phonics? Yeah. Is phonics. it phonics? Yeah. Phonics? Mm-hmm. So yeah. could you please explain it? Sure. So it turns out there's about five interlocked skills that make up, the, that help kids master reading. There's phonics, phonemic awareness, decoding, these elements that go into to helping kids learn how to make sense of sound combinations. And Well, when Reed Lyon was running the National Institutes for Health and Child Development Unit, they did this massive national reading report. It became the foundation in the Bush years for what was called Reading First. It was part of No Child Left Behind. Wound up getting caught up in overreach and and all kinds of problems, but it was an effort to reward school systems and states for adopting scientifically-based reading instruction. And the ed school world hated this stuff for reasons that 
no normal person can fathom. Partly, it's yeah, I talked before about. Whoa, 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 slow down there. Well, it wasn't part of the projection because it was, it was too rigorous. It mm. was too rote. It was too, you know, we're. It didn't we, value it, the joy it, it of reading. Have the, it didn't have the. It didn't have. It didn't allow for greater flexibility, and it, and it, and it, it wasn't. Don't you have to admit that that was part of the reason that there was a kind of, there was a kind of rigor to it that that education teachers don't like for some reason i don't know why it's well so so it's but it's bizarre it's like we Mm -hmm. talked a moment ago about like this false choice between like liking schools or liking options yeah Yeah. like only eggheads think that there's a trade-off here (laughs) well there is this sense in like the professional reading community that the, the the science of reading stuff it doesn't teach kids the joys of engaging with literature but that's a little bit like saying, well, teaching kids how to do, you know, division and multiplication stops them from learning out how much fun it is to. No, no, it's, 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 you're it's right. Like, sorry, I don't problem. even know what it's the a, joys it's like, it's You a can't weird, enjoy the yeah. joys of reading if you can't, you can't read. read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. And now it is true, I think, that we suffer from this problem that we have a lot of lousy instruction mm-hmm. and that these teachers weren't actually taught by schools of education the science of reading. So it felt intimidating and frightening to them. Are schools going to change the way they teach reading as a result now? Is that going to happen? In some states, certainly. In Mississippi, we've seen it. Louisiana, they've outlawed some of the troubling practices. They've overhauled who gets to teach reading in schools of education. So in those states that are actually writing this into law, I think there's a fair degree of confidence. In the other cases, it's going to depend on whether or not there's a cultural push Mm -hmm. towards actually caring whether kids learn how to read. I'm curious on curriculum while we're still there. As a former social studies high school teacher, I mean, the NAEP scores came out last month, Nation's Report Card, and history and civics were some of the lowest ones. I was wondering if you could kind of contextualize that. How concerning are those scores? And then also, how does that kind of factor into the arguments that you've been making about choice? I mean, the the results were horrific. This is the gold standard national assessment, about 8,000 kids across the country. We do it every four years. So the NAEP, the NAEP civics, I think we were at 22% of kids across the country were proficient in eighth grade. NAEP U.S. history, it was 13% across the country. The Secretary of Education tried to blame this on the pandemic, mm-hmm. but these tests were administered last year, and we've seen a downward trend since the Obama years. So it's been almost a decade-long downward trend. This is hugely concerning to anybody who looks around our country and says, how are we teaching kids the skills to make free, you know, to make freedom work, mm-hmm. uh, to make democracy work? One way to think about this is I, I think there's a degree here of blocking and tackling. Rand did a couple of great surveys of teachers over the last couple of years. One of the most striking results was they asked high school civics teachers, what per, how important is it that your kids know what's in the Bill of Rights when they graduate? Less than two-thirds of high school civics teachers said it's essential that their kids know the Bill of Rights and the Bill of Rights when they graduate. They asked a 1,000 teachers who teach civics, K-12, when, you know, what are the most important things for kids to learn when they're in civics with you? 27% said, said it was climate change. 21% said it was American systems of government and society. Well, that's just, I mean, uh, the, the, so, I mean, yeah, it seems like there's... So what's, uh, what's happened yeah. is I think we've devalued this stuff. Yeah. One, the, the big change is not, on this case, not the pandemic. The big change is we have taught teachers that civics is about teaching kids to write a letter 
to write an email to a member of Congress about climate change. It's not about understanding checks and balances or the First Amendment. And until we actually tell teachers that this is what it means to teach civics, I don't think all the curricula in the world are going to solve the problem for us. Yeah. How much of that problem do you think is teachers colleges themselves? Like, is there a better way to recruit and train teachers outside of that system? I think that's a huge part of it. There's about 1,400 teacher preparation programs in this country. I've taught in about four or five of them, the elite ones. You know, these are places that make the Oberlin Sociology Lounge yeah. look conservative. So that's one <laughs> That's one part. Second part is it's not just them. There's also an industry of trainers and consultants that take billions of dollars each year, and they're not concerned about this stuff. So one way out of this is we license teachers before they can go in the room, which means they have to go through these licensure routes. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that there's – the reason we license teacher goes back to Horace Mann in the 1840s and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't make a lot of sense for how we train people like journalists or business managers mm-hmm. in, you know, to do their jobs in the 21st century. People should be free to get tra- a t- training to be a teacher, but you shouldn't have to demonstrate you've got an ed school credential to be allowed to apply for a job. Mm-hmm. So in the grade school rethink, where are we going to end up or where do you think we should end up? And again, I think the great virtue of your work is that you're saying it's there are different answers for different communities, different teachers, different parents, and we have to give them the freedom to find that way. And then and then the market will, will sort of go to where the, the best results are achieved. And really, and you're for that more as much as anything else. But what about measuring standards and tests where, where are you on that? And, and test as a, as a method of, of evaluating a school's success or a student's success. Yeah. I mean, I think, you, you know, it's funny. Pedro Naguera and I did this book a couple of years ago, Search of Common Ground. And when we, when we came to testing, he's the dean of the USC School of Education. And, I, and we thought that it was going to be a drag out, and it wasn't. Because I feel like a lot of the debate about testing is one of those kinds of things that people dream up in, in New York and D.C. That <laughs> He's talking uh, to me. You know. <laughs> I think the way about. most parents and a lot of teachers actually think about this is, of course, we got to test. Of course, kids have to be numerate and lettered it. Yeah. And of course, we need to report that. And of course, we need to make sure kids are making progress. And in fact, when you get teachers away from the union party line, one of the things they'll admit is they're assessing kids every minute of every day, yeah. written, oral, verbal. So part of that, though, is how do we make sure that all of this testing feels useful, like parents are getting a real read on where their kids are and teachers are doing something with it? And how do we use this stuff in a way at a system level that feels like it's about creating room for folks to solve problems rather than a way to lock the doors against anybody who's not running a reading or math program? Okay, so last two more questions. Discipline. There was a there there is a sort of a. I hate to call it this, but there kind, it appears to me to be a, a legitimate partisan divide. In other words, a difference of opinion depending on which party you're in about direction to schools, about discipline, especially as it intersects with race. And and I don't know whether you're I didn't see whether you cover this in your book, but but are we flipped back to sort of very strong direction from the federal Department of Education that schools are not allowed to discipline in a way that might reveal that children of some races get disciplined more than others? Yeah, so this is Max Eden's lane, more than mine. But that that's where the Biden administration is taking us. 
And I think it's a huge problem. I mean, when you think about the kids who are in schools that are unsafe and chaotic, it's kids in disproportionately black and Latino schools. So these are the kids who suffer when order when is not maintained, when schools, when schools are unsafe. Right. But, you know, I mean, my line, I think the best line on this is offered by Howard Fuller, uh-huh. um, a good friend of ours, who, when he was superintendent in Milwaukee, he was back in the 1990s, he was putting metal detectors in the schools. And Howard is, of course, a longtime leader of the Milwaukee black community. And black preachers came to him and said, Howard, you can't put these metal detectors in our schools. You're treating our kids as if they have, you know, as if there's reason to be suspicious of them. And Howard said, I'm not worried about that. If they're not carrying guns or knives, they got nothing to worry about. And he said, if if I don't put up metal detectors... And then the kids who are injured are disproportionately black. You're going to show up here and you're going to ask me, Howard, how come you didn't do anything about that? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a, one more last question, and this, I think, does go back to your sort of everybody needs to approach the challenge of education in a way that fits their own expectations and needs and, and aspirations. There, there was, when I first came to AI, one of the, the, the hot refrains that everybody was using was, hey, you know, not everybody needs to get a four-year college degree in order to succeed, that there are needs for trades and skills and where you can maybe get a certificate or and then be able to achieve a pretty good income in one of those sorts of things. And college isn't necessarily right for everybody. And I think you agreed with that. Now, there's a lot of data out today that says that actually the, the choice of college by high school students, especially boys, has gone down. I guess I want to ask you, is just on the face of that data, is that necessarily bad, or or do you think maybe it's good? I, I think part of the problem here is that the college degree is a fundamental distortion of the labor market. Employers should not be able to require a college degree, is an argument that I have long made, mm-hmm. that it is, an, it is an illegal job requirement. It should be treated thusly. And what happens is lots of Americans who were willing to work hard and want to get a job understand that a whole class of good jobs, like those that our colleagues get to work at an AEI, are only open to you if you get a degree, which turns colleges into this cartel where they get to extort money out of Americans and the American government so they can sell a piece of paper so that people who haven't learned very much for four or six years can then finally go get the job they wanted to get in the first place. So for me, the big problem here is to strip out the college degree and force colleges to demonstrate that they're adding value to people's lives. That said, a second best solution is to make is to offer what we now call career and technical education that is good enough, that is remunerative enough, that it is a choice whether you want to go to work or whether you want to pay somebody to let you into their college. And I think reimagining what we do, certainly in grades 9 to 12, is a huge part of making that feasible. That if the goal is to finally get credentialed teachers who are better woodshop teachers than they have been for the last century or get folks to teach this stuff in schools, it's always going to be a Sisyphusian task because people with good marketable skills in those jobs don't want to work for school districts. So this is about apprenticeships, it's about opening the doors, it's about reimagining time. And if you do that, I hope we create a world where a lot of people only go to college because they want to go to college, and I think that number will be lower than it is today, and I'm, I'm very good with that. The, I, just a little point of fact, I, I'm on an advisory board of one of America's largest and, you know, by far largest banks in America, and this came up with regard to their requirements for employment. 
And they were very emphatic, and in, in, in for some time now, they have not required a college degree for any position in the bank. And of course, the banking industry is very technical in nature. You go to work there young, you can learn lots of skills, and you can move up pretty rapidly. And and so I, I, I think that, you know, if you're Charles Murray, for instance, who used to say that all the time, you know, you know, we've told everybody that the only way to get ahead in America is to get a four-year college degree, and maybe that's not right. I think that message has gotten out. Plus, wages have been rising, and and people are making those choices to get right into the labor force and, and maybe get a little jump on on some of their friends who've gone off to college and, and maybe not and, and avoid the debt that comes with it, and, and what's wrong with that? And you've seen bipartisan movement on this. Larry Hogan did this when he was governor of Maryland. Josh Shapiro has uncovered like 90% of the jobs in Pennsylvania. You know, part of the problem, this is where the Biden administration's student loan policies have just been so toxic yeah. that by creating this mindset that there is going to be some jubilee that it's somebody else's money, you might as well spend it, yeah. that they are working against this otherwise healthy, I think, corrective. Mm-hmm. One more. Um, From Phoebe. <laughs> yeah. That's good. And then um, I have one more, too. Oh, so then okay. we'll be done. I mean, um, or may not. We'll, just we'll keep see. Going. Yeah. So it felt like in some ways, like Glenn Youngkin's election in Virginia was a high point in terms of the influence of people kind of voting on education issues. I'm curious when you think about 2024, you have a couple candidates, probably Ron DeSantis most notably, that have pursued pretty aggressive state education policies that are very different than the national norms. How salient do you think education will be for voters in that election? That's a great question. So this is where I have to put on my PhD poli-sci hat, too. You know, yeah. it's like, look, one way to think about this is that I think education usually works as a sociotropic issue in national elections. That means it's more of a signaling issue. So when you think back from, say, 1990 to 2012, when we were in this long kind of end of the Cold War kind of economic growth bipartisan period, Clinton and Obama used education to signal that they weren't tax and spend liberals. They were like, it's about investment and personal responsibility and opportunity. George W. Bush used education to signal that he was, you know, he believed in this kind of gentler vision. 41 did the same thing, right? That education was about showing that we meant it when we talked about equality of opportunity. We weren't just... Well, he was showing that he, he was interested in the concerns of black and Hispanic kids. Exactly. Which this. is... A legitimate which thing is for a, a Republican to want which is to a terri- Oh, no, no, no. I, I don't mean to suggest otherwise, yeah, right? Yeah. And frankly, I very much liked it when Obama and Clinton talked about opportunity and responsibility. Yeah, exactly. like, I think that was a very admirable thing for a Democrat yeah. to convey. I think what's changed is those plates have changed in a polarized country. So in 2016 and 2020, instead of using education to signal to the middle that you believed in opportunity and responsibility, it became a way to signal the base on cultural debates. And that means it's more significant in the primary than it's going to be in the general election. Mm. And I think we've seen that. I think this. I think education has worked has worked powerfully in DeSantis's favor in making him separating him from Abbott or DeWine in terms of the Republican kind of gubernatorial field. Mm-hmm. When it comes when it comes to the national election, though, I think the data is pretty clear that 70, 80 percent of Americans agree with like the three of us when it comes to how should kids learn about American history. But I don't think many Democrats are going to say, well, I'm going to cross the line because of the culture fights in education. I think it it does rise to that level of salience in the gubernatorial. So like Yunkin McAuliffe. 
but in a national election, it just doesn't it doesn't outweigh everything else that's going to be pulling in. <clears throat> the only thing I would add to that, Rick, is that my wife is a great observer of this issue in the political debate, being a former school board president in the upstate New York. She watched Governor DeSantis give a speech the other day where Governor DeSantis, I think, emphasized and said three times, I kept the schools open. And her response to that was, he just keeps saying that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think that he has an advantage. Not a, he, he does the culture war stuff and all that. But for people in the middle, people who are Democrats, the schools being closed for so long was an issue where if the other team was for getting them open again and your team wasn't and it wasn't, might make you cross over and say, I think I'll be with the, the more conservatives or the Republicans. I mean, I think for Zeldin, this was a huge yes. part of the New York gubernatorial. Right. But I, I do think, and, and we'll see, I mean, it'd be interesting to look at, you know, something. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that plays much better in a gubernatorial election than in a national election, um, yeah. just with so many of the other currents in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and now, here's my last question. Is there something in the book that we haven't asked you about that you really want to say? or that's really important to you. We always feel like we ask our questions and then, but the whole purpose is for you to say what you want to say. Yeah, I think the main thing is so many of these issues that people want to solve with more money, we could actually solve by doing this better. Let me give you two examples. One, the governor of New Mexico just extended the New Mexico school year by two weeks. That buys you 60 hours. We talk a lot about, hey, kids need more learning time. Well. What's not well understood is that American kids spend 100 hours a year more in school each year, K to nine, than their peers in other industrialized democracies. They spend more time in school than kids in Germany, Japan, the rest. But we also know that only about 65% of this time actually gets used for learning. We have hundreds of hours where kids are distracted or bored. They're not having fun. They're just sitting in these buildings. And while I am all for extending the school year, if that's what's going to work for those kids and communities, I worry that we would rather spend hundreds of millions or billions adding school time before we make sure we're using the time well. Mm-hmm. Similar example is we have dramatically increased the number of teachers relative to the number of kids over the last 40, 50 years. We've almost doubled the number of teachers relative to kids. We've made a bet on quantity. And it makes it harder to fill these staff jobs, and yet you don't see real small class sizes. The other thing we could have done is we could have instead opted to invest in quality rather than quantity. If we had done that, average teacher pay across the U.S. would be about $130,000 per year. Median teacher pay today without another nickel in tax dollars would be $130,000 a year. But we have instead chosen to put those dollars into adding bodies. And I worry that this is the easy thing to do. For It, it buys off union officials. It, it sounds reasonable. There's always a demand for smaller classes, but the consequence is we've never actually stopped to ask, is this the way to spend these dollars to serve kids? And so for me, uh, hopefully the book is about asking, you know, taking a step back and saying, can we think again about some of these ways we've been spending $800 billion a year in public funds to serve kids? So just to summarize that, in other words, an extra two weeks in, in school might not be the answer. It's really the quality of the time, not the quantity. And we don't need more teachers. We need better teachers. Or we need to, and we need to use the teachers we have in smarter ways. In smarter ways. Um, okay. Guy named a friend of ours, Matt Kraft, the Brown University, did a study three years ago. Providence Schools. 
Providence schools, the, just the sheer number of disruptions in a typical classroom over the course of the year, 2,000 disruptions. By the time you add up all the time, it's 10 to 20 school days. That's two to four weeks. So if you simply found a way to reduce by 50% the number of disruptions from in and out of the classroom, from announcements, from everything else, maybe that's better than actually spending $500 million or a billion dollars in tax funds to lock kids and teachers up for an extra two weeks. Last hot button issue also is getting some rethinking from others. I don't know where you are on, but where are you on the on the the boy girl disparities and redshirting boys having them start school later or go slower through the grades? Sixty percent of college kids are women now. I mean, yet as Mark Perry points out incessantly, like this is not you're not allowed to talk about the challenges facing boys. Uh, you know, redshirting. Maybe we we did a study. It was a Diane Schatzenbach, who used to be at U Chicago. Forget where she is now. Northwestern. Northwestern took a hard look at this stuff. I think the evidence of redshirting is generally overstated. But you know, or do we need certain kinds of supports or programming? Do do young boys particularly fare better in different kinds of environments? I think these are the kinds of questions we totally need to be asking. And instead of rushing to some kind of pat solution, I think what we ought to be saying is. This is a problem, and we ought to be talking about what kinds of experiences learning environments work, and if those ma- if it matters, if different ones work for young boys rather than, rather than for girls, that should be an opportunity rather than a, a cause for hand wringing. So, in other words, there's something there, but you but but the answer might not be a simple one. It might be more varied and complicated, and than just saying let's hold boys back a year and let them start later in school. I mean, that that strikes me as insane. I mean, systematically <laughs> holding back, boy, you know, that strikes me yeah, as nuts. Yeah, yeah. And right. Well, the, but the 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 interesting thing is, is that I think in my not so distant past, parents of chill of kids who approached the public school system in New York City, you know, powerful, strong, wealthy New York City, who said, for a variety of reasons, I want this five-year-old to start second first grade as when when she or he is a sixth grader, six-year-old. They were told they were not allowed to do that. And so there is, this sort of gets into your choice and letting parents see what works best for their kids. You Would you object to that? No, parents know their kids. We should create options for those parents. But, you know, my, my general bias on this is that most of these programs that we talk about work somewhere. When done by people who understand them yeah. and there's a lot of TLC... And then you take them to scale and they disappoint, right? You know this from your world of work. Yeah, 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 yeah. So for me, part of the opportunity here is rather than imagine that somebody in a legislature is going to come up with the solution for boys, let's create rooms for different kinds of schools and support programs to figure out what works for the boys they're, that they're working with and let parents find the one that, that meet their needs. Uh, okay. I, I couldn't resist because there's a little bit of undertone in this conversation that I'm the the Pat Solution reformer <laughs> from Washington, and Rick is the cautious conservative saying, you know, have a little humility. You don't know all the answers. So I'll give you one more sort of one I think is an answer, and and try me on this, see if I get this one past you. <laughs> so my limited reading of the, of the school literature is that schools that make a real effort to engage the parents in a pretty regular, intense way in the performance of their student, where the parent actually has to work a little bit at 
helping their student do well in school, the, the success academy model. That is a that's a good answer, good idea. You can't you can't say that's a bad pet answer. No, no, I wouldn't. Yeah. I, like, I, I got one. There you go. And I don't even know how the hell we got you to be the big government. I mean, you were you were the guy I'm, in New York yeah, who I'm was a local administrator. The, that's all. That's right. The the, the bet noir but, but, or the biggest. But 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 if parents are involved in a child's education and and called in when kids aren't doing well and and asked to show up at meetings, not just voluntarily, but that is not a bad way to help a kid get a better education. No, it's crucial. I mean, right, and this is what the pandemic highlighted, right? In fact, it was funny, this Harvard Law professor, Elizabeth Barthole, a month before the pandemic hits, is writing about how we need to outlaw homeschooling because it is a travesty that parents get to have this outsized influence over their kids. Right? Only a Harvard Law <laughs> yeah, professor yeah. would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there you go. And then parents, I'm not a part of that group, that's for sure. <laughs> and then parents are made kind of mandatory homeschoolers. Look, actually, let's close with this. This is kind of a fun point that I, I've just been writing about recently. Is you know, A, you're 100% right about the parental engagement piece. And I think one of the cons- one of the things here is the way in which big victories have unanticipated consequences. So back when I supervised student teachers, like in the 1990s up in Boston, it was no trick at all to find a teacher who would say, I can't teach that kid or those kids. It was just part of the vernacular. And it wasn't racial necessarily. It was class. It was all kinds of stuff. And then over 20 years, a bipartisan group of ed reformers, I like to think I was part of it, Change the culture. Being a responsible educator meant that you believed your job was to try to find a way to educate every kid. And teachers will say, still say that stuff, maybe, but they'll whisper in the parking lot now. But the problem with that victory, unforeseen, was in order to make sure teachers weren't blaming kids and families, we said, you can't, that's scapegoating. You can't scapegoat families. And now we've gotten to a point where principals and superintendents and are scared to death to talk about the family responsibility. Mm. They, they say, no, we don't want to blame the fa-. but But if you don't blame parents, that's fine. But, but if you don't ask them to be partners or responsible, then you're kind of disengaging them from the process. So I, one of the things I talk about in the book is the need to reestablish this relationship where we need to make clear that principals and teachers don't get to blame parents but that they absolutely, it's appropriate for them to say parents need to be partners in doing this work. Let's finish with that. That's very good. Thank you very much, everybody. See you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.